You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Westwood One's Podcast Network, powered by Conservative Review. It is late Friday, May 18th. I I feel like this week has been has had probably 20 days to it. Uh, my head kills from the array of issues we've been dealing with. Um, this is our fourth episode. We've got tons of articles. Check out our archives. This has been a, a true blockbuster week. I've made a lot of progress on a lot of our projects working on Latin America and Hezbollah. But today, even though we did have Foreign Policy Wednesday, it is Friday, and it is Foreign Policy Friday, so that means we bring on Conservative Reviews National Security Correspondent Jordan Schachtel. Hey, Jordan, what a what a week! I mean, I'm telling you, wow. Yeah, action packed. You can't even. Um, I can't even break down how many things significant to the world happened this week. There's just been so much going on. In addition to the turmoil in Congress and in Israel and elsewhere, it's just a lot of things on our plate this week. No, it's it's nuts, and it's it's it's. I, I I thought it was last week the embassy moved. I'm like, oh no, that was this Monday. Um, yeah. you, you know that should have been the biggest event of of the of the month, and uh, you know it's kind of been washed away. I want I want to get into the lessons we can learn from Israel. What's going on there? Always our point is it comes back to our homeland security. Why we should care. What we should learn about it. Uh, I just first want to give our listeners an update. The farm bill was just defeated by the Freedom Caucus. Thankfully, they voted it down. Uh, there's been a lot of confusion with the nexus of immigration and the farm bill. Why were they saying that we won't vote for the farm bill unless you give us a vote on immigration? Now, first off, no one should be voting for that farm bill anyway. It is has fake food stamp reform, and to the extent there's a little bit of reform, it creates a massive bureaucracy to deal with these phony job training programs um, when states get all sorts of waivers not to even require work requirements. Um, so that wasn't worthwhile. It in- increases the market-distorting farm subsidies that are like Obamacare, by the way, shallow loss. Think of turning insurance into covering everything. So not just c- catastrophic, but funded, funded by the government for shallow loss. We pay more money because of this. You know, The same way Obamacare saves money, these programs save money. They don't. Um, we should have been opposing it. Unfortunately, if I, if I have time, I'm going to put out a briefing on this. But if you look at some of the amendments, Tom McClintock from California submitted an amendment to phase out all farm subsidies by 2029. Nobody votes. It got 35. That's it, out of a body of 435 members. Um, he also had an amendment to actually have real work requirements for food stamps. It only got 90 votes. Ultimately, 30 – it doesn't matter because it was defeated. 30 members on the – 30 Republicans voted it down. Um, why did they do so on immigration grounds? So as you well know, a bunch of moderates are trying to push the discharge petition. That is a discharge petition to bring up a vote on – immigration, ultimately to pass amnesty. Mark Meadows had a strategy, and I confirmed it with him, that basically 
the, you only get one bullet in that gun to fire the discharge petition. The the official bill is actually the Goodlap bill, the the bill that although it has some element of amnesty, it has all of the enforcement and legal immigration cuts we want. So the left could never vote for it anyway, and it won't become law. But they were trying to force a vote on the Goodlap bill. A lot of people were asking me, "Well, Daniel, what do you want from Paul Ryan and and Kevin McCarthy if the left has 218 votes between liberal Republicans and Democrats? You know, doesn't that force a vote?" Well, it forces them to bring up a vote on the underlying bill, which is the Goodlatte bill. Leadership could bring it up and then write a rule out from the Rules Committee and block all amendments. So their plan was to amend it with the amnesty bill. So uh, Meadows' strategy was to to basically exhaust the discharge petition on the Goodlatte bill. So it exhausts it. So then they can no longer force a vote because you already forced a vote. It's kind of convoluted. That was their strategy. They wanted to kill this, and they said, all right, you want us to vote for a farm bill. It had nothing to do with this, but they kind of bartered and said, we'll only vote for it if you give us that vote on the Goodlatte bill so we could go and kill the discharge petition. They did not do it um, because Paul Ryan is in legacy-building mode, and he wants amnesty. So the farm bill is dead, but the discharge petition is not dead. Stand by for next week. We'll be talking about that. Anyway, want to move back to Jordan. Foreign policy, starting with Israel, you know, our foreign policy is much like our domestic policy, that we have existing paradigms that we keep feeding with other market distortions. Well, because we have this market distortion, we need to fix the credits because we have the ethanol mandate. Well, why why do we have the ethanol mandate? Get rid of it. Well, we need to fund these alliances because it will do this. We need to placate the Palestinians because otherwise it'll hurt the two-state solution. We need to um, tell Israel to stand down because otherwise it will hurt our relations with Turkey. Uh, we need to f- um, screw the Kurds because it will hurt our relationship with um, Baghdad. We need to placate Qatar, which we'll have some news on that today. Otherwise, it will hurt CENCOM, which is based there. Well, why do we have CENCOM there? Well, so we could fly into Afghanistan. Well, why are we in Afghanistan? Um, why aren't we reprioritizing our alliances, our diplomacy, our military priorities, our intel? What are our threat, threat doctrines we speak about every Friday here? Um, fortunately, Trump has really – I mean you got to give him credit. This has been a historic week, really good stuff. We're going to talk about today how we take that momentum and – fully consistently realign our priorities you know whereas now there's still some still some conflicting views within the administration but for the good news all right jordan what in your mind is the best news from this week other than the fact that the embassy was moved well it has to be you have to come to the conclusion that the trump administration and this isn't really um out of reach to say this they're the most pro-israel administration other than maybe the Truman administration that we've ever had in U.S. history. And it's um, the fact that they're standing shoulder to shoulder with Israel can do so much for our alliance and for the region and, you know, ultimately for regional stability. And it helps our Arab allies really essentially come out of the closet on this Palestinian issue and say, you know, and admit that they really don't, really care so much about this fraudulent issue um, that they're, you know, we're encouraging really these nationalist patriotic movements in the Middle East. So there's a lot of good things um, happening in the Middle East, but 
uh, first and foremost, it has to be that the Trump administration, you know, in opening the embassy and standing with Israel against Hamas amid this media firestorm that is, of course, painting Israel as this boogeyman, which is so ridiculous because we saw that um, they when they were defending their border, they basically every single person that they took out there was affiliated with Hamas, affiliated with Iran-backed Islamic Jihad. And the Trump administration, to their credit, especially Ambassador Haley at the United Nations, doing a fantastic job. Um, All the credit in the world goes to them for standing with Israel in in the toughest of times where most administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike, have folded to the the media's uh, assaults on Israel. You know, and by the way, it reminds me, I'm going to link to in show notes, and we're going to link to some of Jordan's articles as well. I have a morning article out, must read. It's kind of an end of the week think piece. Have we reached a tipping point in the moral divide in our nation? And I kind of juxtapose the left's response to Hamas and MS-13. And it's interesting because they're both border-oriented, one in Israel, one in America. And I want to cross-pollinate that throughout this show today, what we could learn from Israel's sovereignty, security, and what we should be doing. And you had a similar reaction. You know, they they were insulted by calling MS-13 animals. And Sarah Sanders, the press secretary, rightfully said, that's underwhelming. They're they're much worse than that. And it's kind of similar with Nikki Haley, as you mentioned, you know, when they were saying all of war crimes and 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 she was like, they're they're actually too restrained. Um they're remarkably restrained and targeted, um, being really uh, careful in what they're doing. Um, to me, one of the most mar- remarkable things, I'm curious your thoughts the outcome of this week, both the um, move to Jerusalem, but also the attack from Gaza. I, I, I mean, I have to pinch myself to realize that the Arab countries are more supportive of Israel than the Europeans and the American left. You've seen a shift in you know, when America leads, of course, um, other nations follow. And what the Obama administration did was they empowered the Islamists. This started right away through Barack Obama's infamous Cairo speech, where he basically announced that their aspirations to create Islamic states was fine and we shouldn't judge their culture, and that the root of all this problem is that Israel is um, oppressing the Palestinians. It's basically what he said if you look at the Cairo speech transcript. Now, the Trump administration has empowered, I think, the right actors in the Middle East Um, especially these Gulf states who now have a newfound, because, you know, these are very new countries. They're all less than 100 years old, um, which is very new, you know, in the grand scheme of history. And these countries have a lot of people within them that really care deeply about their nation. Um, And I think it's very healthy to establish a sense of patriotism um, and national pride when it's juxtaposed and the only other option is Islamism and uniting, you know, the, the Ummah, the Muslim world, um, towards a particular philosophy, it's much healthier, you know, to go with this decentralized option and find out what we have in common with the Saudis, the Emiratis and our other allies, instead of just trying to, um, you know, encourage them to connect through radical ideas. Um, it, it's been a very positive step forward. And I think encouraging this, this nationalism, this patriotism is, has been a key um, part of that process. You know, it's actually funny, uh, just to deviate from, from the conversation for a minute, you mentioned they were, they're only 100 years old. It's true, a lot of people forget that. 
that you know they think oh you know they had all all these Arab countries and Israel is kind of this new European types moving down there relatively recently and colonizing Arab areas so to speak really was no man's land uh, under under the Ottoman Turks but the reality is the exact same time the same League of Nations meeting in uh, San Romeo that created or called for the creation of the Jewish Jewish state in. Uh, all the land west of the Jordan River, and originally under the Balfour Declaration three years earlier, it was actually modern-day Jordan to the entire British Transjordan Mandate. Um, But they they were created at the same time, right? Yeah, it's so baffling. I mean, all the people forget, like, no one's questioning the sovereignty of of Gater, which was um, I, I think it was it was established in the 1970s. <laughs> uh, the same goes with the UAE. Um, you have Bahrain, same deal, 1970s. Even Iraq, which you, which has you know Baghdad has a long history in the Muslim world, but the the nation of Iraq, as it's presently stated, was you know a 1930s project. So it's like yep. you know, these are all very newly established nations, and for whatever reason, only Israel's sovereignty is questioned. Well, Israel and the Christians, I would argue the other thing is what's interesting is that the the French and the British divided up Syria, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq were created or were to be created um, as a Arab state. Eventually, Jordan, they split off on the east side of the West Bank. Um, But then Lebanon was supposed to be a Christian state at the same conference. But Syria kind of did to Lebanon what Jordan tried to do to Israel, except, you know, they succeeded more and there pretty much is no Christian state. Just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, and now Lebanon is owned by Hezbollah and by proxy Iran. <laughs> That's a whole other subject. But, um, you know, it, it's really uh, it, it's really a proud moment for the U.S.-Israel alliance again. Uh, you know, all the credit in the world goes to the Trump administration. Israel is now empowered to really um, even accelerate its qualitative edge over its um, adversaries, and you know I, I'm I'm encouraged that hopefully you know these these other issues with Turkey, Iran, that the uh, the people in the Pentagon and the Trump administration will start to move that ball forward in the right direction too when it comes to um, you know where our soldiers are stationed and where our soldiers are fighting for for causes that may not be. Uh, you know, necessary anymore. Exactly, exactly. And I, I want to gradually get to that by starting with the second part of the week. You know, the embassy move largely got supplanted in the news by the invasion by Hamas and Islamic Jihad at the Israeli Gaza border near many of Israel's small um, kibbutzes, uh, villages there. So, I want to unpack this here. You know, when you had the Benghazi attack, so it was very interesting. On the same day, you had the protest at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, and it seemed very believable that, you know, because you had the protest there, that the one in Benghazi next door in Libya was a protest as well, maybe a protest that kind of got out of control and turned violent. And I actually believe that from day at the first day, that's what I thought happened. And I realized, oh, no, this was an orchestrated attack. So isn't that what happened here in Gaza? It wasn't even a violent protest. Wasn't this an orchestrated invasion by Iran? Yeah. So what originally happened with the protests at the Gaza border is that there was this group um, creating this uh, the march called the Great Return March, which is, you know, basically they, they think they have the right to the entirety of the land of Israel. 
And the organizers behind it, um, these people were not really in control of the march. You know, they claimed it was a peaceful protest, blah, blah, blah. But who was actually organizing people and bringing people to the border with Israel was Hamas. Um, the people who were, you know, claiming to run the show, if you understand how it works in Gaza, Hamas controls everything. And Hamas is responsible for what happens for within Gaza because they're the ruling political entity and, you know, they were once elected. So I guess that's what establishes their legitimacy. And, you know, sadly, they're, they're supported by the majority of Gazans, according to polling, too. Um, but clearly, Hamas, a U.S. designated terrorist group, set this up. The plan was basically to overwhelm the border, to put immense pressure on Israel. Luckily, Israel did not back down, um, even though they were harassed through the mainstream media. People were accusing them of using disproportionate force. Uh, this bizarre argument that Israelis had to die if they wanted to shoot people for trying to infiltrate their country. Yep. And of course, as you know, the geography of Israel, there's no room for error. Um, if they broke through this border and they were unrestrained, they have half a mile to some Israeli border communities. That's, uh, you know, a three minute run for a jihadi terrorist, I guess. Right. Yep. So these we, we've seen in the past what's happened when they break through the border. Um, they go into these communities with bloodthirsty ambitions and Israel rightfully took the right steps um, and had to deter these people from breaking into their country. And it's as simple as that. You know, I, I look at everything in a geopolitical way here, you know, just the broader picture. Um, Hamas is a proxy of Iran. Iran. It's not, not as centrally controlled, obviously, as Hezbollah, um, but certainly Iran's the big player. And, and, and you can't look at this in a vacuum. So, you know, Iran's really been screwed over <laughs> more than they've ever been screwed over since, you know, 1979. Um, Israel just humiliated them with the Mossad operation, uh, stealing their nuclear secrets out of Tehran right under their noses. They just completely own them in, in Syria, destroying their operation. Actually, as we're talking, there's bombs going off in Huma, um, a town in the northwest of Syria where they kind of wonder if Israel's doing something there. I mean, maybe we'll uh, we'll see what's going on there. So, I mean, they, they really... Israel seems to really own them intelligence-wise in, in Syria, militarily. You put yourself in Iran's shoes and, um, you know, man, like, what do you do? I mean, they're not going to take this sitting down. So one of the things I've been talking about all week and, you know, very into this project all week is I think they're going to really screw us over in our own hemisphere. So that's one. But as it relates to Israel, so what do you think of this theory that – the next logical step, everyone was saying until now, even before Israel was this bold with them, is that Hezbollah had 120,000 rockets aimed at Israel, and you know that's the next front, that Iran's going to give them the green light, and they're going to start a full-scale war. But I was wondering if the, I, if the Gaza border thing was a test run, kind of the lower-level um, proxy of this, where they you – know, as you well know, they're into political warfare – even more than military warfare. That's how they've always gotten to Israel. And I think one could argue, I know I know this is a very sore point in Israeli society, that you know, to some extent they lost some of the war in, Hezbollah, in uh, Lebanon 12 years ago, largely because of Condoleezza Rice and you know, Bush's second term, which is kind of like the Obama administration. 
and they they held them back at their most vulnerable moment. They lost a lot of soldiers. They didn't, you know, they didn't finish the job. Isabella got even stronger. And to them, their their strategy for success is all is all all hinges on Israel fighting a politically correct war. If they actually will level their areas, they can't win. But if they get Israel to fight a politically correct war, they could win. I was wondering if this was a test run to see whether Israel would actually shoot. And then to me, the fact that America for the first time ever didn't put out some stupid trite, both sides need to stop. Uh, you know, they, they have the right to protect themselves, but watch your disproportionate force. I'm wondering if that was a message that, dude, if you try to pull off the Lebanese thing, it ain't going to work. Yeah, and, and the thing is, the issue is with Lebanon is that it's going to be exponentially worse when, in fact, that next war does come because all of those missile sites, as you know, are set up in civilian areas. Um, so it's going to be, um, if Hezbollah starts a war, it's going to be incredibly devastating um, for the people of Lebanon and you know the people of northern Israel especially. And um, it, there's going to be... Uh, I don't think Israel can win the PR battle. And they. It, I'm just glad that we have an American administration that recognizes who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And I think that Hamas, unfortunately, has learned, um, well, they've learned for good reason that Israel will defend itself. So that's a good thing. That's a good deterrent. But the bad thing is that the international media is so hell-bent on demonizing Israel, that I think that they will be encouraged to do more of this because it works. Um, there's a reason why, you know, Hamas sends out people to die. And I guess there's two theories. One is that they're Islamist radicals, right? So they think that, you know, Allah is going to intervene maybe and uh, throw the, uh, the war to them. But I think there's a lot of other more rational minded people that see they can kind of break the under a more hostile U.S. administration and an always hostile international community, they can seek to kind of take away the political capital that Israel needs to defend itself. And that's, that's the ultimate goal. You know, w one of the things that really, gosh, I mean, like I said, it really keeps me up at night is, like I said, Iran's next move on America. Um you know, they, they have to be planning something. I'm just wondering, watching this, what would, if, if you put yourself in their shoes, what do you think their next front is? I mean, do, do you think ultimately they will unleash a, a war with, with Hezbollah in the north? Well, I, I think, unfortunately, it's going to come to that because there's going to become a point of no return where Israel feels so incredibly threatened that they're not going to create a situation where they feel that they can lose um, thousands of innocent civilians in a war with Hezbollah. And, you know, Iran continues to push the boundaries of what is acceptable. Israel just launched a massive military operation to move um, the Iranian regime out of Syria. But again, you know, Iran still flies directly to Lebanon um, they still, you know, Israel can't get every weapons shipment. So when these weapons, you know, they're eventually going to have to pull the trigger, unfortunately, 
in order to stay like it's just an untenable situation to have tens of thousands of um, rockets stationed on the border. There is no good way out at this point. Um, you can well try to find a diplomatic solution. Um, and what the U.S. should be doing on this front is breaking away from the Lebanese armed forces. And we've discussed this a lot. Um, but the LAF has basically become the Lebanese armed forces have become um, aligned entirely with Hezbollah, which is the more powerful um, army at this point. And us empowering the Lebanese armed forces and legitimizing them as an ally only serves to um, increase the chances of war between Israel and Hezbollah. So, you know, that's one front where we can kind of mitigate the threat. But unfortunately, it's looking like that Hezbollah is totally committed to um, permanently threatening Israel and Israel will not accept the situation where they feel that you know, they can lose territory or they can be invaded and then tens thousands, if not tens of thousands of casualties can result. So uh, you, you fear that Israel may have to strike preemptively at some point in the near future. And uh, there's a lot of serious defense analysts that are kind of wargaming that situation right now. You know, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, I've come to appreciate this from the last week, a couple of weeks talking with um, border agents, DA, former DA guys, um, experts in Latin America, that Hezbollah is basically the biggest non-state actor of any kind in the entire world. Now, in some ways, it is a state actor of Iran, but even in its own right, a lot of people think there are a bunch of poor schleppers in the Becca Valley there that rely on money from Iran. And, and definitely a lot of the rockets, the weapons, the juiced up supplies they had were a result of the Obama administration's policies, the Iran deal. You know, they got an extra hundred million or so from Iran every year. But I've come to appreciate the danger of how they've amassed such an arsenal, particularly the last five years. You look at the 70,000 dead Americans every year from drugs and the cocaine trade. Um, it's not just the drug cartels, it's Hezbollah who works with them. And they earn over a billion dollars a year from that, from the contraband. They have a whole operation. And, and again, I mean, this is something I had Attorney General Jeff Sessions on this show this time yesterday. And he made it very clear their top priority is terror financing. We have Lebanese, Lebanese Shiites in America. Um, part, it's particularly problematic with the used car sales. They're um, used car salesmen. Imagine a <laughs> jihadi used car salesman where they, they send them, they have aerial photos of their um, the cars in these lots in Western Africa on the, on the shores. And that's where they launder the money and all the proceeds. And it goes in to the drugs and they make a killing off the drugs. Now the drugs are a big enough problem. It's killing a lot of Americans, but that money you, you better believe it's self-sustaining. So they're not just reliant on Iran. They have their a very shrewd business operation in the Western Hemisphere, um, and that's that's certainly uh, contributing to it. So, um, you know, I, I just want to, before we go on to what we can be doing, and, and I, I want to get back to sovereignty. It all gets back to sovereignty. It's my favorite word. It's the title of my book. I still don't know how to spell the word, but, you know, sovereignty <laughs> – if sovereignty is everything. And what I find amazing, and I wrote an article juxtaposing the left-wing assault on our sovereignty and Israel's sovereignty, there's this utopian, morally dyslexic view that when you have a first-world country, meaning that you take care of your people, you have a stable society, and other people don't. 
and they have violent actors, that somehow you have an obligation to suffer equally. They'll look and say, look, look at the hundreds of people being killed and now the hospitals and this gets destroyed and you guys didn't suffer anything yet. The notion that we need to bleed just as much as them. And no, if you if God has given you the wherewithal, you have an obligation to your people. Not one person needs to die just because they have problems. Look, there's some innocent people caught up, but but that is their problem. That's the the just laws of warfare. And everyone used to understand that. I just find that amazing because that, that's where a lot of this is coming from. They look at Israel and they're seeing, look, no one got killed there yet. And you have hundreds of people getting injured, 65 or so killed. And as you noted, most of them are um, remarkably Hamas operatives anyway, but even if they weren't, um, I, I'm, I'm finding to me this is the linchpin of everything, that there's no understanding of sovereignty anymore, of nation yeah, states. Not, not just no understanding of sovereignty, but no understanding of good and evil. Um, the concept of American exceptionalism really died during the Obama administration. We're trying to resuscitate it, but people that put the United States on an even playing field with, uh, you know, Venezuela, even Brazil and these other countries that are, you know, narco trafficking half the time to raise revenue and doing, you know, morally awful things to, uh, you know, finance terrorist groups. You know, we shouldn't be responsible for the um, what's going on in their countries. And, you know, we do feel for the citizens that are impacted, but that doesn't make it necessary for us as Americans to to sacrifice our security because other countries are, are having a rough go. And it, it, it comes down to, you know, you, you defend what you can um, and you, you do it. When our public officials swear an oath, you know, it's not to protect the citizens of, of Venezuela from the evil regime. Um, we, we, we feel for these people, but it, it is not the responsibility of our elected officials um, although the Democrats seem to think that we're responsible for, you know, every single um, every single poor refugee from wherever throughout the world. It's just untenable, you know, and it affects the the American citizen the most when you're importing all of these people. And then you have to create welfare programs for them. And then, of course, when it's the Middle Eastern migrants, one out of every so many might have, uh, you know, aspirations to become a member of ISIS. So when you continue to import these people, um Although, you know, some labor, of course, is good. Uh, the problem is that we can't, we have no vetting mechanisms. And I, I can go on about this, but, you know, it, it does come down to this, this moral rot and this, this, you know, this forgotten sense that we, you know, we need to remind ourselves that America is indeed exceptional and we don't need to apologize for our sovereign, for protecting our sovereignty ever as Israel has successfully shown that even the best way to protect your nation is to kind of tune out the, uh, you know, the, the haters in the, in the mainstream media and these European governments and elsewhere that are trying to get you to essentially surrender and expose your citizens just to tune them out. And you need to do what you can to protect the country. And, and, and it's a step further. It's not just that, oh, you know, you have to worry about your people first and, you know, not them. It's that this very moral dyslexia of violating natural law um, and our, our mutual buddy, uh, David Reboy, just emailed me another Cordovella article um, where I think he talks a little bit about this, about natural laws that relates to sovereignty. 
when you violate natural order, you actually inevitably create a cascading effect of death and mayhem and destruction that you even not just hurt your people, you hurt more of their people. And I want to juxtapose this. I said this a little bit yesterday. I have it in the show notes in Gaza Borders and the Left-Wing War on Sovereign Nations article I put out two days ago. Just looking at both the American border and the Israeli border, and then I want to talk about the Israeli border policies and immigration policies there. Um, You know, so let, let's just say, let's just say, you know, most of the people coming from Mexico, Latin America, let's just say they're innocuous, but just poor. They will have cultural problems, problems in the schools, obviously big um, public charge. But what a lot of people are missing is that sense of compassion, the DACA, the incentive to create an atmosphere and an, an economy of border migration is what creates the violent drug cartels. Um, to compete with each other, killing 29,000 Mexicans a year, the rape trees that you have of the women coming over, the whole the human smuggling, obviously the tens of thousands killed because of the drug smuggling. You know, if you would just do it more naturally, I would disagree with it. But okay, we're going to have massive legal immigration. We're going to take boats and just land them in Latin America and bring in people. But, but the border would be shut. At least you wouldn't have those problems. But here, you're actually killing more of their people. Same thing with Israel. What you're seeing is not just disregarding for Israeli sovereignty, the Israeli um, security and, and their people. In fact, if you wouldn't have the media, you wouldn't have dead Gazans because they wouldn't do it. They can't defeat Israel militarily. I mean, it was all for the media. It was all for that desired result, the reaction. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree. And, you know, all they would be doing right now, I guess, is just shaking their fists right at Israel and... Uh, um, you know, still trying to conquer them eventually, but it wouldn't, you know, their strategy would have to change, or maybe they would actually have to make peace or surrender um, to the Israelis and, you know, find a better long-term solution. This, uh, you know, the media kind of enables them to continue to go at it nonstop. And, you know, there's a flare-up with Hamas every couple of years now, and, you know, Gazans have to die because of this. And it's very unfortunate. But yeah, coming back to the sovereignty issue, um, I like that the I, I like some of the president's rhetoric on Mexico, but I think both of us have been talking about this a lot recently. That I think that the U.S. Um, we need to look at this as a defense issue, and we need to do more to call on, especially Mexico, even though a lot of these um, you know migrants are coming from other countries. There, the passageway into the United States obviously is through Mexico, and I don't think I've seen any statements from the Pentagon from Northcom, Southcom, uh, from the White House, calling on Mexico to do more to protect its own borders. You know, just as is, you know, I'm not calling Mexico a terrorist state or anything, but Israel has a really good strategy with this. When something happens in Syria or in Gaza, and you know, a rocket gets fired, Israel calls on the Syrian regime or Hamas, and they say, "You are responsible for this, and we hold you responsible." And if you don't if your actions don't change, you know, we're going to we're going to hit you hard and you're going to suffer the consequences. And I'm not, of course, advocating that we shoot, you know, missiles at, at Mexico, but we, we should hold Mexico responsible for what's happening within its country. I, I understand that, you know, it's difficult to tackle these cartels. And if they want our assistance, I think that, you know, the American people would be very supportive of uh, of operations to crack down on these cartels, which are, of course, 
um, threatening the lives of millions of people. And you know, the, there are incidents where they're shooting at Border Patrol officers constantly, too. So you know, that's where we should kind of restructure this argument is that we need to call in Mexico. If Mexico isn't willing to um, protect its own sovereignty and control its borders, then we need to kind of shame them into doing so. Shame them to do it or, or, or do it ourselves. And again, we need to go yeah. after the drug cartels, which they're killing more Mexicans than Americans, although they really I, – I mean, if you want to look at the drugs, it's it's 70,000 or so a year. It's twice as many people who die from car accidents. Um, and again, a lot of this is not just you know druggies that will do it anyway. A lot of this are unfortunately kids get into the culture a little bit. Um, they wouldn't necessarily die or not always get addicted, but they're they're laced with all sorts of poison. Um, we're going to talk about this in, in another point with the these Yemeni um, gas stations that have uh, K two spice, uh, this synthetic marijuana that is laced with rat poison. I mean, there's there's all sorts of stuff going on, and again, this. T- ties into terror financing a lot of that money going overseas um yeah i mean you're right it's not just a dhs issue i mean that's what we don't realize it's a state department issue it's a it, it's a dod issue we don't we learn all the wrong lessons from israel i want to get back to that you know we're like oh well israel is involved in syria let's get involved but first of all syria is their border second of all they're not supplying the water and plumbing in raqqa and they're not going after the Sunni insurgency, really, which helps Iran. They're just focused, not even on Assad. They don't give a darn about Assad. <laughs> not really. Um, they're just focusing on Iran and Hezbollah and the things that directly affect them. We need That is the equivalent of, that's like Israel's Monroe Doctrine. We need a Monroe Doctrine, and that's what we talked about with Joseph Umeyer. Um, I'm not against foreign aid. I'm against it in the context that we're doing, fine just giving it to these random things or often enemies, we should be, you know, if Trump gave a major Monroe Doctrine speech tomorrow and said, we are turning our attention to Latin America. If you want to work with us, we'll be your best friend. If you're going to work with Iran and we're looking at you, Morales and Bolivia and and Maduro and and, and the Al-Sayami and, you know, the VP there in Venezuela – um, Castro, uh, the the uh, no, well, not Castro, whatever the new regime in in Cuba, uh, several other troublemakers there, you know, Nicaragua, Ortega, El Salvador, um, dude, we're we're against you, but but but, you know, part of the thing is, I can't blame some of these countries. So you know, you always have good actors, people on the fence, and then the bad guys. We need to use the carrot and stick approach to say, hey, Mexico, um, we'll work with you. Um, and we're doing this a little bit, and Israel's doing this. They're working with Paraguay, training them in counter Hezbollah operations, and not surprisingly, Paraguay is moving their embassy to Jerusalem next year. Um, well, one thing, one of the things Humeyer told me is that while we're, we face the most perilous times ever in Latin America with Iran and Hezbollah and other just general anti-American sentiment, the last couple of years we've seen elections where a lot of them are turning over, Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Peru, um, Panama, Guatemala, you're seeing they're moving their embassy to Jerusalem. So we're seeing this cross-pollination almost. Um, And we need to work with them and say, hey, we're going to train you in counter-Hezbollah, counter-terrorism. And then then you're going to have the middle ground countries that will be like, wait a minute. You know, we better go with America. But if you put – if you look at it in their view – 
There's no leadership in America the last 20, 30 years in Latin America. They don't necessarily, you know, with the exception of Venezuela and Bolivia, they don't necessarily want to tick off America. But they don't want to tick off Iran either. They have weak institutions. Some of them have a big Lebanese diaspora. And, you know, frankly, some of these NGOs operating there are stronger than they are. You know, they're they're going to kind of play both sides of the fence, not because they're necessarily inherently evil. This is where the statecraft works. And do do you hear or speak to anyone within NSC, defense, state, that's even focused on this? Yeah, unfortunately, the prioritization is not where it should be. But it, it kind of brings interesting parallels to the situation that Reagan had to deal with and Nixon um, and you know past presidents with the Soviet Union and how um, they started to influence South and Central America to the point where governments were not at, clearly at that point yet, where governments were starting to be overthrown and communist regimes were imposed. Um, but the radical Islamic threat is, is certainly building, and we can use those tools. Uh, the the Reagan administration took the threat of communism very seriously to the point where a lot of our intelligence community was all over Latin America, um, and you know putting some money and arms behind um, anti-communist forces, and you know it's the same kind of. Uh, we don't necessarily need to like flood those countries with. Um, you know, influential aid and stuff like that. But we can prioritize towards uh, diplomatic efforts towards combating that radical Islam problem that's building in the Western Hemisphere and, you know, borrow from that ideological war that we fought against communism and kind of use those same tools. And and by the way, it flows naturally from communism. I mean, that's what Joseph Humeyer um, said on the show that, you know, whereas originally there were more kind of Marxist mentality, you're seeing a lot of pan-Arab sentiment that, you know, he believes Maduro and Chavez, they were more influenced by Ahmadinejad than they were even even Castro. Um, it's wow. a, you're, you're very much seeing that and it's mixing in. Um, you know, he, he's a native, well, he's, he's born in America, but I mean, he speaks the language. His parents are from Bolivia. I mean, the guy knows so much. It was, it was a wellspring of information, just all the conversations I've had with him. And, you know, he was showing how, um, the anti-American sentiment was, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's Trump, but it was, it was boiling over the last couple of years before Trump. Uh, it's just, it's really been there. And, and whereas, you know, we kind of look at, ah, dysfunctional, What's going on there is nothing there. Let's abandon it. Well, the Iranians say, that's great. The no man's land, you know, nothing going on there. We'll come in and, and, and really work on um, both the cultural institutions and the the state level um, with their embassies are doing tremendous work. Um, and I've, I've even read it, 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 it's in the Caribbean and that's where you're seeing the drug smuggling, the um, more shipments were caught off of. Costa Rica, uh, um, um, not Costa Rica, uh, Puerto Rico and Florida. Florida is very threatened by this. You have Barbados, Granada, um, Dominica, all those islands starting from off the coast of Venezuela going northward. They're all, um, there's all some sort of Iranian influence there. And it's it's really, it, it just astounds yeah, I, I me. I did a project on this a couple of years ago, and I think I found that there's almost 100 um, Iranian-controlled or Hezbollah-controlled either cultural centers, mosques, institutions, um, in the Caribbean especially, 
you know, they're really infiltrating these countries through their relationships with these South American uh, economies. And, you know, it's becoming a huge problem. And that's why we need to tackle it. And I, I hope that Congress also asserts its role, too. They're not holding enough hearings about this because, you know, every time they do, we, we get some explosive testimony. But unfortunately, when you're when you're talking about the Hezbollah Iranian threat, um, these hearings only occur, you know, once every two years and we have nothing to really go by it. But I, I think it's encouraging, as uh, Attorney General Sessions said on your program yesterday, that, you know, the U.S. Is kind of refocusing uh, towards this illicit uh, smuggling and uh, terrorist financing operation that, you know, he did uh, talk about has infiltrated the United States. And it, it, I hope that they're reprioritizing efforts. And I think if the general public want, if you want to get the general public behind it, um, it's definitely worth having the, both the government and Congress really uh, raise awareness about this and bring in experts from, you know, within DOD and the rest of the government and in the private sector that have been tracking this stuff for a while and that can tell you, you know, this is a serious problem. You know, and, and that's the thing. It's not just obviously, you know, in America we have a culture from from Christians and Jews um, because the Bible because of the history to support Israel, but just also to to learn from their experience. Um, you know, there's a Hebrew term that they use there. It's it's embedded in the psyche, ain't breira. There is no choice, right? You, you don't have a lot of rope to mess around with like we have here to hang ourselves because the threats are too subtle. There it's like, well, you know, there's no margin of error. And they, they use the right tools. And notice that, you know, by a factor of 10 million, they have more reason to worry about the Middle East than we do. And they still don't own the tribal warfare dumpster fires in Somalia, Yemen, Iraq, Syria, including Syria, you know, where they're where they do strike and maneuver um, and Afghanistan. But what they, they address the 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 first of all, they properly identify what's a threat and what's not, even though, you know, you'll have areas relatively close where they're you know being pretty dangerous, but they, they don't view that as a strategic threat. They employ the right tools. What's a military threat? You respond with the military. What's a diplomatic thing? You respond diplomatically. What's a financing thing? You respond with financing. What's an intel thing? This they're really good at, and we really need to follow human intel. We need to have that in our own hemisphere. We don't have that enough uh, boots on the ground in, in, in these countries like they do. Um, heck, they probably have more boots on the ground in Paraguay than we do, from what I'm hearing, um, which is pretty insane. And you know, and, and folks, by the way, this is this this is why to segue into this, I really need you guys to support our sponsors of this show, our Foreign Policy Friday, Dynatrap Indoor Flylight. You want to talk about going around with the right tools. When you get mosquitoes in your house and these dumb gnats this time of year getting in your food, biting you up at night, um, you could run around chasing your tail with a baseball bat to try to destroy a net with a baseball bat, just like we try to destroy a terror financing immigration threat and an intel problem with a military in an Islamic civil war. Or you could get Dynatrap Flylight. So, I mean, Dynatrap has been a leading manufacturer of outdoor mosquito and in- insect traps for for ages. Uh, but I want to talk to you about what I have. I don't have an out- outdoor one. You should check it out on their website as well. I have the indoor one. The indoor one is... It works great. You don't have to do anything. It's like having good intel. It's a beautiful light. The kids love it for a night light, and it attracts the bugs. It does not have a zapper like the outdoor one, so it doesn't wake you up at night. 
And I got to tell you, it really, really works. I've been using it. I do not have a single one of them in my home, even though the kids are forever leaving the doors open. Um, visit Dynatrap.com. That's D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Enter promo code Daniel. Receive 15% off on their products. They've got a lot of really cool products. But folks, that is Dynatrap, the safe, silent, and simple solution to household insect control. I'm telling you, Jordan, how about it? What about if we had the right tools? What I'm thinking yeah. now is, you talk about Congress. Congress ain't doing jack squat. They, they have this NDAA where there's 500 amendments. I, I actually glanced over them. I was sending you some of them where basically it's all about acquisitions, number. I mean, very few. There's a handful of good amendments I want to highlight, but nobody's thinking strategically where do we need to have our military? Where do we need to have our bases realigned? Where do we need to have our intel diplomacy? I think there's one multiplying force. And I'm, I want to put together everything we've been saying. Isn't now the best time to repeal and replace the UN? The best time when the Arab nations are coming closer, when we have a number of allies propping up in Latin America and Eastern Europe, and the, and the traditional allies in Europe are becoming more Islamic than the Arabs. Um, wouldn't now be the best time when Trump has so much popular support? To me, it's no secret that he's rising in the polls precisely when he's doing good stuff on foreign policy because that we're not really doing anything good domestically after the tax cuts. And wouldn't it be amazing? I was thinking, I want you to elaborate on this point for me. This is just a nascent idea of mine. What if we had a coalition of freedom for sovereign nations? Right now, the UN is built upon the principle of, of globalism, screwing everyone else's sovereignty, basically taking the third world and Islamic countries and screwing the Western world with them. What if we got together, both countries that are in somewhat the third world and in the developing and developed world, and said, let's get together and be allies, share intel, diplomatic tools, military when necessary, and have the greatest common factor rather than the lowest common denominator of sovereignty. Protect all of our sovereignty. Eastern Europe, you're worried. They're, they're very worried about you know the migration from there. Latin America, you're having problems with Hezbollah. America, we're having problems from that. We talked about Venezuela. We're going to experience their migration. That might be our Syria. Um, Israel, obviously. And Israel's working with Ironically, it comes together, the Eastern European nations and Guatemala and Paraguay and some others um, moving their embassy to Jerusalem. Trump has taken this leadership on the Iran deal and the embassy move. I think so much could be done on immigration and many other issues with that. How do you think we would get this off the ground? I'm just trying to think what this would look like. Well, the UN, you know, as a, as a Wilsonian, one state, one vote, everyone's equal type project. It, it was always bound to fail because we know that, you know, the amount of rogue states in this world would just eventually gang up and use their voting blocks. You know, you see this with the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the 57 Islamic states that generally vote for everything um, that is uh, in their interests. And we and then we have, you know, this alliance of totalitarian nations like China and Russia and Venezuela and Cuba and dozens of others 
that use the United Nations as a platform to harass uh, liberal democracies, harass Israel, especially the United States, we get no benefits out of um, having the United Nations. It costs taxpayers billions of dollars. Who knows what, you know, what kind of dark money or, um, you know, off budget money is used to prop up this massive institution. Um, it's got to be billions of dollars. So it's a waste of money. It, it ultimately hurts our diplomatic capital. It really serves no purpose for the United States to be one vote, even though we have veto power of the Security Council, um, which, you know, passes meaningless resolutions. Uh, so you're right. You know, th the world is changing very rapidly. And I think that it would be beneficial to kind of get a survey out there and see which nations will stand by us in, in this move towards uh, secularization, liberalization in the Arab world and um, these Eastern European nations that are worried about their sovereignty, the threat from Russia, um, and of course, you know, the European Union turning into this massive anti-Western, anti-American project. Um, there's been a transformation, and I think like more of a natural transformation of alliances. And the United Nations is not really satisfying our needs to um, protect our country. And, you know, it would be interesting to see what countries will fall in line with the United States. And uh, I think that, you know, the president has done a great job at using his bully pulpit to uh, keep the Europeans in line. But as future allies, you know, they're not on our side. And you see it in, in the in the uh, UN votes. Um, you see all these Western European nations. Uh, voting with the Iranian regime and trying to negotiate business deals with the terrorist sponsor there. So it's just it, it, the European, the European Union, the United Nations, all these giant international organizations are seeking to kind of undermine the United States. So if we can lead a project, a U.S. centric project that promotes our values instead of these so-called international values, then yeah, of course, I think that is something that the American people should get behind. Maybe not the, uh, you know, the progressives because they also kind of align with these UN values. But it would be great to create an international organization that's based on, you know, the fundamental concepts that founded America. No, exactly, and that's what I want listeners to understand. That you know. A lot of people associate this with globalism, but it doesn't have to be that way. You could have a very strong, engaging foreign policy that's just the opposite, that's used as a tool to promote sovereignty in America first. And, and like you said, there's so much changing the world. And I, I don't say this to criticize Trump. I say it because he's done, he started this, and there's so much more we could be doing. He's already doing this. He recognizes the, the you know, German, you know, he, he can't stand them, Theresa May, and I mean, Macron is a little bit complicated there, this buddy-buddy with him, but, you know, he knows Merkel's a, a total uh, empty suit, and, but, but he's, he's reaching out. He's really, he's, he's tweets about it all the time, the Eastern European countries. He just tweeted something yesterday about Macri in Argentina. That was a big turnover from Kirchner there, and, and look, you know, as, as I'm talking now I'm I'm reading the one of the Mexican presidential candidates said, I categorically reject your vulgar expression against migrants. Um, as president of Mexico, I will firmly defend their rights. Uh, you know, and, and I'm thinking, you know, we don't play good in these elections. And you know, 
they teeter back and forth every few years with the Latin American countries. It doesn't have to be that way. If we strengthen them with these alliances, we would strengthen it so we'd always, you know, or most of the time have guys on our side rather than risking, oh my gosh, every other time we get okay, someone decent or, you know, especially Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, Brazil, and then the especially Central American countries, they flip back and forth. You know, you get a Chavez guy, you get an Ortega type of guy in there. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. But instead, what do we do? You know, so some of it Trump's doing right. Some of it you got Mattis and it's not even the appointees, it's the institutions that that the 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 Pentagon, the State Department they they just it's so outdated that we're now we're still supporting Qatar and Turkey, which form the axis of evil with Iran, but we're not supporting the Kurds so much. We're we're you know I just I don't get it and and, and why like I started off the show with the farm bill, you know one program to support not well Daniel well uh, we have the bases in Turkey and Sencom and Qatar well freaking move your bases from Turkey to Romania and. I don't know, from CENTCOM over to Kurdistan and, and frankly downsize it and upsize Southcom in Latin America. Yeah, as part of this restru- the, the global restructuring, we do need to take a, a, a moment at, at, you know, as the U.S. government to somehow audit our alliances, you know, not just audit our defense posture, but also you know, keep track of what's going on with our allies. And we haven't really done that. And I think especially the Department of Defense has come way behind through Secretary Mattis um, in promoting this like 1980s, 19, early 1990s fiction that, you know, Turkey is still secular and Qatar is still uh, an unknown quantity. We know exactly where these people stand and they're not on our side. And it's, uh, you know, it, I think that's why your um, suggestion of kind of either reforming, forcibly reforming the UN or the US quitting the UN or creating, you know, this type of US centric or US values centric um, international organization that promotes sovereignty, that promotes, um, you know, stability, recognizing that, you know, it's okay to um, want to defend your nation and want to protect it and not have to be part of these internationalist leftist, Islamist, um, damaging movements that threaten global stability and international order. And and that's the thing. The thing, they always shove it back on us and accuse us, do you want to destabilize the world? And but and that that was always the deterrent, and that's that's really I mean it's the same thing with domestic policy. Do you want to destabilize the insurance markets? Do you we we can't do anything because you're going to destabilize, right? That that's that's how they have us around the neck. They control the status quo and they use it to sabotage. But the beauty is Trump did it. He just you know he just picked up the grenade, took out the pin, and threw it, and it worked. You know on on both the the, the embassy, the Iran deal, that die is already cast, and you're seeing it's not true and. You know, far from destabilizing, you now have you know he he jumped into the sea and people followed him and you got and, and there's one thing to follow America, but I mean, it's pretty big deal when you have countries like Paraguay and Guatemala not just signing with America but with Israel. I mean that that's a big leap for them given you know their status in the world. I mean it, it's kind of like you know, there's a class nerd and you're kind of weak and then there's the big bullies and you're supporting the guy that's not cool. I mean, that's that's a big move. They don't have a lot going for them in these countries. So I think there's a lot of um, 
mutual cooperation. Trump, again, is he's starting it, but it's just a lot of this stuff is slow to uh, to realign. And, um, you know, I, ju- I just want to move on to one thing before we conclude here. Another part of this theme for today, what to learn from Israel and, and back to sovereignty and borders. So, you know, in 2006, Israel, a lot of people view their problems with, you know, the Palestinian Arabs living there to the extent they exist. Um, that's their security problem. A lot of people don't realize they had an illegal migration problem like we have. They had from Africa, um, Eritrea, Sudan, places like that. In 2006, it was almost non-existent. There were 2,700 illegal immigrants in Israel um, from those two countries. It started in 2007 you know, they, they had this migration and then by gosh, what was it? 2011, they already had, um, tens of thousands of illegals in the country. And in 2011, they took in, if you extrapolate their population to Spain's population, they absorbed 95 times more illegal aliens that year than Spain did. And, you know, that's when you had the migration from Africa into Europe. So it was pretty bad. Um, And again, you know, you talk about the moral arguments and certainly the left wing NGOs in Israel. Oh, we got to take care of these people. There was rampant rape and crime in South Tel Aviv. They had major issues. And, you know, we've had this problem for decades. We don't do anything about this problem. They only had for a few years. And you know what they did? 2011, they built a fence. Um, not to be mixed up with the fence in Judea and Samaria, this on their southern border with the Sinai Peninsula. And illegal immigration fell by 98%. In 2013, there were 123 migrants. In 2017, not a single one arrived. What do you think we could learn from Israel and how they get things done politically? Yeah, I remember those days because I spent a lot of time in Israel. In, in 2012, ah, I lived right. for a year in Israel. And um, I remember going into Tel Aviv and you see, you know, there are constant protests on either side. It was a heated political debate. But of course, the number one issue for Israel at the time was securing its border because you had the Arab Spring fully unfolding, which made it so Egypt basically abandoned the Sinai because the Sinai, remember at the time, well, and now it's still an issue. But at the time, it was such a severe terrorist hotbed. Oh, yeah. It was basically fully, uh, al-Qaeda out and you know the Muslim Brotherhood was working with al-Qaeda and there was constant bombs and terrorism and you know dozens of police and civilians were getting killed and they were attacking you know those ancient monasteries and it was a horrible time but I do remember that the, 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 the human smuggling was also out of control you know these people were arriving um, out of Eritrea and Sudan uh, they didn't speak a word of English and they also came from a culture where, uh, you know, a culture of violence, because these are countries, you know, constantly in, in a state of chaos, no governance, um, kind of like a state of nature where, you know, the more physical, powerful person gets the apple kind of thing. And you bring these people into a democratic society accustomed to the rule of law. And, you know, they don't really know any better other than to, you know, commit uh, crimes to get what they need. Or, you know, a lot of these people, some of these people even had like Islamist backgrounds. So it was a huge problem. But Israel, the first step they took, um, as you said, was to build 
a, a wall and kind of secure the perimeter. And when they, you know, it was still a problem in Tel Aviv, you know, you still had the crime and you had the nationalists on one side and, you know, the ultra progressives in Israel. If you think there's progressives here, of course, you know, the, <laughs> the progressives in Israel are just straight up communists. Uh, they wanted to open the borders entirely, but, you know, luckily they had good leadership under Netanyahu. And they, I think that our Congress can learn from this a lot too. You know, while you're fighting over DACA so much, I, I wish that they would just focus on securing the border because once you cut off the the inflow of people, then you can have an actual discussion yeah. about, you know, who is in the country. Um, you know, are they Islamists? Are they Mexicans? Are they um, from Ecuador and El Salvador? Or, you know, that's so Israel could have that discussion and they it played. They could, you know, move it through the legal system. And that was a more controversial thing that we can you know, get to another time. But, you know, they they mitigated the problem through border security and they could keep eyes on you know these troublemakers and then they eventually basically were able to give a lot of them a deal to tell them to go back to their countries and um you know they paid some of them off and you can talk about that but um you know the point is that they secured their border and they by eliminating the the threat of more migrants coming in they could deal appropriately um with the ones that were already in the country Exactly, exactly. And, and the amazing thing is it ties into the courts. They have the same problem there with the Supreme Court giving all sorts of rights to them. And, you know, I've been screaming from the rooftops and I even asked the attorney general about this yesterday about finally kicking the courts out of this issue. And it's, it's you know, no matter what, this has been going on for years and no one will push this. But my understanding is in Israel, they're actually going to bring it up in the parliament to to kick the courts out of immigration um, or to override. I mean, they're, they're really looking at judicial reform there. Yeah. And, and the, the lawmaker, the right and right of center lawmakers are, you know, they're facing the same problem with the judicial supremacy that we're facing. And, you know, you've covered this issue a lot. Um, but, you know, they, again, they're, they're just talking about this, these handful of people who all, by the way, are identified. And that, that's the difference between, you know, what's going on in Israel and what's going on here is that we're using the same uh, migrant numbers that we had, you know, in the 1990s, and we're just assuming it's like 12 million or whatever. <laughs> I don't think we really have any idea how many um, illegal aliens are in this country at this point. They, they add it down to the exact number. I mean, obviously, it's a, mm -hmm. you know, it's the size of New Jersey. It's a smaller, you know, smaller country. But um, I, I just want to conclude with this. Um, just to bring this full circle with Israel, I, I, I've been I, I like studying other countries' systems and seeing you know what what the left does there and you know do they succeed more or less here, and I'm finding an astounding phenomenon in Israel, and I'm trying to again you know closing with this theme of what we could learn from their situation for conservatives here for our sovereignty or security in America. This is a country that was founded by Marxists. I mean, literally Marxists. There were people that on the kibbutzes had pictures of Stalin. I mean, these were the, – the Israeli Labor Party is what started Israel, big leftists. And you know, to this day, there is less free market thinking, although it's gotten a lot better, but still less free market thought there than, than in America. There's no – my understanding, no real concept of conservative talk radio. 
um, all of the Hebrew language, except for, I guess, Adelson's publication, um, which is relatively new, it's all left wing. And yet, and yet, to me, it's astounding that over the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of people are talking about this, the left could no longer win elections. Whereas, you know, you, you see in Europe, you see in Australia, you see in Canada, Latin America, and America, you know, it goes back and forth from the right to the left, back and forth. People get sick of one, goes to the other one. Astoundingly, Netanyahu has been there for, what, 10 years? I mean, yeah, something like that. I mean, it's, yeah, 10 years plus another term plus, that he had as prime minister earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's a good point. So you, that, that's yeah. even more fatigue. And there's no signs of him or his, you know, power structure going down they they freaking indicted the guy um because they control the you know they have their own kind of fbi equivalent deep state problems there what what i'm trying to say is they have even more favorable ground for the left and yet the left cannot win the labor party is almost non-existent that founded the country is almost non-existent they were decimated to me here's what scares me I want to get your theory. My theory is this and why that's true. Because they already paid the painful price at a very painful cost for people to finally wake up. You had the Intifada when the left was in charge. You had Oslo. The Basically, it was the Oslo War um, from Rabin, Perez, that era um, where they paid, if you extrapolate Israel's population to America, it's something like tens of thousands killed maybe over 100,000 wounded, you know, the equivalent of America's population. That's how painful it was. It culminated in 2005 with the Gaza pullout, which is ironic that, you know, they gave it to these guys. They ripped out their own people. It was a very, very dicey moment. Um, having your own army pull out your own people. Um, they had to rip up the graves. They had to literally move graves. You had the synagogues destroyed, almost reminiscent of Kristallnacht, um, when the Palestinians took it over. And then immediately they turned around and started tossing rockets from the, the areas they obtained. It became a weapons cache, all sorts of stuff. The left was so busted that they could no longer no longer win. You know, then you have a clear majority of the country. That recognizes it. What, and and I, I know I've gone on long here, Jordan. My punchline is this: I'm scared that it's going to take something like that in order for us to defeat the left in this country. I just want to get your yeah. thoughts from having lived there. Yeah, I, I think that the you know the Israel is a very new country, and you know it's founded by leftists who had illusions that they could make peace with their neighbors by showing you know that they were good people, they wanted to live in harmony, and the lessons of Israel throughout the last decade is that when you, your neighbor or your neighbor across the street says they want to kill you, you better start taking them seriously. And that's why labor can't win elections and the Israeli left can't win elections because, because they, refu they refuse to recognize reality that when every time Israel has made a concession, its security posture has decreased. And every time Israel makes um, you know, a move that will enhance its national security, um, it it becomes a position of strength for Israel. And if you've seen the Netanyahu tenure is a perfect example of that, because throughout his his most recent years as prime minister, he has made amazing diplomatic outreaches to, you know, ev 
every country imaginable. And this is through um, a, a, a posture of strength and, of course, embracing entrepreneurialism and having something to offer uh, works well, too. But, you know, that's kind of the lesson that the Israeli left learned is that concessions you know, they've done everything imaginable to appease the international community, the international media, um, other countries, and gave away, as you talked about, Gaza, and gave away the Sinai after they took it um, back from Egypt. And you know, now the Sinai is a hellhole, and it's going to be forever, basically. And you know, every time Israel gives something away, that it, it hasn't benefited them at all. And, um, you know, I think that's what eventually people are hopefully, I, I think there's still massive support for the two-state solution everywhere. But I think that will be the next chip to fall is that there will be a consensus behind, hopefully a consensus behind re- recognizing that that's just not going to work because the Palestinian framework is one that was always formulated to oppose the concept of a, of a Zionist state. But, you know, that's why the Israeli left doesn't win is because, you know, they're the Surrender caucus. Because that, that, that's what scares me here. That's what really scares me, that the threats are still too subtle, that not enough people recognize it, um, unlike in Israel, where it just became so such a reality, and they had to pay a painful cost and giving up their land, dying. Um, whereas in America, you know, it, it, until it just... 9-11 was going to be that moment, but the problem is we squandered it. We did all the wrong things, didn't do the right things. And then you never, you know, we've had tons of attempted jihads and small jihads since then, but there was never anything mm-hmm. massive that really followed up. So people just, you know, just don't care anymore. And and again, this ties into what I told you from, from the intel people I spoke to, that that's part of why Hezbollah hasn't attacked us with the operatives they absolutely already have in our country, uh, just simply because that might be be the you know turning up the the temperature a little bit too too high and the frog in the boiling water then we'll actually right. react whereas you know it, it's just the stealth jihad and um you know i i guess in israel it kind of it became too expensive to be a leftist you know what i mean the cost was too high whereas in america you could still virtue signal and live a good life and you don't really necessarily feel the blowback from those policies um I'm just scared that we're going to have to go through a period like that where it gets that bad, where we literally have the equivalent of rockets coming in, um, blatantly, you know, bombs going off all over the place at a much quicker pace than we're seeing now in order to finally um, defeat the left. Yeah, and I think you're right that the, the fight starts on the southern border and then goes from there. So if we can. If we can reprioritize and start there, I think we'll be in good shape. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, anyway, thanks for, for joining us as always. And and uh, that was Jordan Shacktel, And we're, we're going to link to his stuff in the show notes. It's been a very productive week. I'm honored by you know the numbers we're seeing. And, and again, yeah, I need you guys to support our sponsors because anyone who supports someone like me, let me tell you, <laughs> they're, they have a lot of guts. Um, next week, yeah, we're, we have a lot more coming on immigration, the farm bill, where this is headed. Keep sending me your comments at RM Conservative on Twitter. Jordan, where do people find you? You can email me at jordan at crtv.com. Perfect. Jordan at crtv.com. Have a great weekend. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.